In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The love of God and the joy of Christ be with you this day, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is a joyful day. Today was rally day, the start of our Sunday school. We have them outside, social distanced, and learning about Jesus. What could be better? Yes, God be thanked and praised for that. And for our wonderful Sunday school teachers and volunteers that are making that happen. It is fitting, fitting to have this joyful occasion on this day when the Old Testament and New Testament texts, or rather the Gospel text, both speak to us of joy. Both reveal to us how our Father in Heaven is a true giver of joy. We see in Isaiah and, and Jesus Parables of joy, but yes, also judgment. In Isaiah, it's wild, sour grapes. In Jesus' parable, it's wretched and evil tenants. But the message is the same. Evil is temporary. Evil is temporary. What you don't want to be, then, is a wicked tenant or a sour grape. You don't want to be a stealer of joy because that's what the wretched tenants and the wild grapes are. Stealers of joy. So I've titled this homily, Stealer of Joy or Giver of Joy. Now, to begin with, I'm going to scandalize you a bit, maybe but it's my pleasure to scandalize you in just this way. A vineyard, but perhaps in particular, a biblical vineyard, is not given for the sake of making grape juice or grape jelly. A biblical vineyard is given for the sake of making wine. And wine, as the psalmist says, to gladden the hearts of men. Vineyard, wine, gladness, joy. That's why it is a love song that God sings through the lips of Isaiah concerning his vineyard, his establishment of a place of joy. And he, with his own hands, this lover of the vineyard, makes a vineyard unlike any other. He wraps around it a fence. He puts within it a wine vat. Inside is even a tower for its protection. He removes the stones. He plants choice vines. He does everything that he can so that joy may flow forth. But who ruins it? The unbelief the sinful, stubborn idolatry of his own people. Instead of joy, instead of good fruit, they produce sin and sour grapes. What does God do with that vineyard? Well, 
He looked for righteousness, but found only an outcry, and for justice, and found only bloodshed. So he decides, enough. Long enough have the people of Israel stolen my joy. So he destroys that vineyard. Only to have our Lord Jesus Christ come along many, many hundreds of years later and tell the parable of the vineyard in his own way. But the themes are so much the same. Again, there is a master who loves his vineyard more than is imaginable. The same themes, a fence around it, a wine press in it, and a giant tower. And we are given more details about this vineyard master. He wants there not only to be joy flowing from the fruit of the vine into the cup, but the joy of bringing ten tenants in to work, that they may rejoice in the labor of their hands, that they may feed their families and be rewarded richly in their vocational life, that they and all people may live in harmony. But who ruins it? In Jesus' parable, not so much all of Israel in general, but the religious leaders of Israel in specific. They are the thieves of joy. At harvest time, the man, the master of the vineyard, sends out his servants to collect some of the fruit, which is rightfully his and rightly to be expected. And what happens? Well, they beat one, kill another, and stone yet another. Incredibly, he sends servants again, this time even more. But the tenants treat them the same. Unimaginably, this man then sends forth his own beloved son. Surely they will respect him, he thinks. But respect him they do not. They say, this is the heir. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And so they throw him outside of the vineyard and kill him. And the early church fathers pointed to this reality that Jesus was thrown outside of Jerusalem outside of the vineyard on Golgotha and was there slain. So that the image on the front of your service folder of the man lying face down with the telltale nail marks in his hands is an artistic rendition of the son cast out of the vineyard to die. Our Lord Jesus Christ crucified by his own people but of course, as we well know, it's broader than that, isn't it? He comes to die not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Yes, he comes to die for the entire world. After all, it is our rebellion, our stealing of his Joy, begun in the Garden of Eden and continuing in each one of us to this very day. It is this thing that he means to remedy. So he sends his beloved son. And what do we, his creatures, do to the one through whom the world was made? Deicide. We murder 
God. And in this, we glimpse the bitter root of each and every one of our sins, whether small or great, whether thought, word, and deed, whether commission or omission, the bitter, bitter root is that we want God dead that we can have our way. What should be done to wicked tenants like us? God works his redemption precisely through our evil. Precisely through the greatest act of evil humanity has ever done, the murder of God, he works our highest and profoundest good. What does it mean when we say that God is a giver? Of joy. He is incomprehensibly good. Not only does he give joy, but then when sin and death ruin that joy, when sin and death have their way with his own beloved son and leave him dead outside the vineyard, through that very act of evil, he performs for us the greatest good. That is why we call that Friday good. By the death of God, we have all been brought to life. By the death of God, God will work the profoundest of all joys, the profoundest of all sorrows, to the profoundest of all joys. The blood of Jesus shed. What could be more terrible? The blood of Jesus shed. What could be more wonderful? Our sins forgiven. Mankind redeemed by our Heavenly Father, true giver of joy. A brief detour. A couple things for you to consider personally. If it was ancient Israel, if it was the religious leaders of Israel who were thieves of God's joy, then we might also ask ourselves this question. What are the thieves of our joy? What are those things that take us away from the word of God, the love of God, and the joy of God? Sinful things obviously come to mind, but some things that aren't in and of themselves sinful and yet strip us of these things just the same. Those are the things we ought to consider. I can think of a few and maybe they resonate with you a bit. But overindulgence. What if it's overindulgence in wine, since that's the theme of the day? Or food? Or shopping? Nothing inherently wrong with those things, but if we misuse them, they actually strip us of our joy. So too with watching the news just a bit too long or spending time on social media just beyond what's healthy for us. Everything in moderation, but when the moderation is lost, what is meant to give us joy takes that joy away from us. 
So consider for yourselves what things are stealing your joy and consider how it is that you might remove them. Because the question laid before you and each one of us is the question of the vineyard. God wants his vineyard to bear fruit. Are you going to bear fruit or not? Are you going to be a thief of joy or are you going to be like your Father in heaven, a giver of joy? Consider then how the Lord makes you joyful and sustains the joy that is in you that you might increase the joy of others and might do so vocationally in your marriage. Husbands delighting wives, wives delighting husbands. That is what God would have, an increase of joy. Children delighting parents, and parents delighting children, although that's increasingly rare the older they get. God would have us be joyful. So a really difficult question, a challenging question that I want you to meditate on and ponder. Are you in some a thief of joy, a stealer of joy, or a giver of joy, one who blesses the people around him or her with more joy. The threat and warning of Isaiah and our Lord's parable is that those who are joy stealers have no abiding place, no lasting place. They will be removed. And this, too, because God is a joy giver and he will not long abide that which removes joy from everyone else. The day is coming, the day of judgment, which is also a day of great rejoicing for the people of God because evil and joy stealers are finally removed and it is only now joy upon joy in the new heavens and the new earth. God is the supreme giver of joy. One final point I'd have you meditate on, and that is how God gives joy through transformation. We see that, for example, in both of the masters of the vineyard who take land that is producing no joy. And he takes that which produces no joy and turns it into a vineyard which is meant to be flowing with wine to gladden the hearts of man. He changes that which gives no joy into that which does give joy. And the heart of this, the heart of this is the giving of his prophets and the giving of his son to a world that looks for joy in all the wrong places. He sends these, even though they be abused, even though they be killed and crucified. Sometimes we look at this parable in the wrong way. We say, think to ourselves, how much does he dislike and abuse his servants, sending one after another? And how is he so foolish to send his son after all the others have been so mistreated? But that's the wrong way to look at this parable. The right question is, how much does he love even those evil tenants? How recklessly does he love even those who steal his joy? so much so that he sends his beloved son to them so that their joyless, joy-stealing might be transformed, that they might go from wicked tenants to his own beloved children. It's a transformation. Why did God send his son? Certainly not for happiness, but for joy, deepest joy, 
And why did the Son of God gladly come and gladly lay down his life? Again, not for happiness, but for deepest joy. And that worst possible Friday is called good. All is transformed in the way of joy. In fact, God so wants joy that he is willing to suffer himself that all might have it. In a few moments, you'll come forward to this table. And this table, too, is a transformation of joy unto joy. The first thing that's transformed and changed, plain bread and plain wine become the body and blood of God's Son. That as we partake of that bread, we partake of his body. And partake of that blood, we partake of his blood. Partake of that wine, we partake of his blood. So that we are transformed from sinful tenants to forgiven sons of God. But the transformation is not yet complete. Because just as Jesus himself is Eucharist, so he transforms and changes us to be Eucharist unto the world. By partaking of the bread that is his body, we become wholesome bread for those around us. By partaking of the wine that is his blood, we become wine that gladdens the hearts of those around us. To drink the cup of his death is also to drink the cup of everlasting life. To drink the cup of his sorrow is also to drink the cup of deepest and everlasting joy. As it went for Jesus, so it goes for us. As St. Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Transformation from suffering to joy. We are not made into wholesome bread without the heat of the oven. And we are not made into mature and fine wine without the great wine press of this life's sorrows. But in the imagery of Isaiah, he is transforming us into good grapes and good wine. And in the imagery of Jesus' parable, he is transforming us from evil tenants into beloved sons. So brothers and sisters, I wish much more for you this day than mere happiness. I wish for you deepest joy. Joy in the shape of the cross and the resurrection. May God fill you with true and everlasting joy. Joy found in the bread of life and the cup of salvation. Joy found in His beloved Son. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please rise for the offertory.